Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 3. We've got a lot going on this morning. Thank you for your patience and your cooperation. Thank you to Wendy, who's not in here, right? But thank you to Wendy and Rick. Rick had something to do with organizing this, and his part to play in this was doing exactly what Wendy told him to do. So thank you, Rick, for doing what your wife said. Philippians chapter 3. We're going to look at the last verses in Philippians 3, verses 15 to the end of 21. This is what Paul says to the people in Philippi. This is what the Lord says to us, speaking through Paul. All of us, then, who are mature, should take such a view of things. And if on some points you think differently, that too, God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have as a model, have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For, as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their, sh- their, sorry, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Let's just take a moment and pray again. Father, we've come to you many times already this morning. We come to you just one more time in prayer before we look at your word. We ask that you would open our hearts to it. Help us to see exactly what it is you want us to see. Help us to understand what Paul was trying to communicate. Help us to understand what you are communicating to us through Paul. We thank you for this gift of your word, the treasure that we have of you speaking to us. And we pray that you would help us to treasure it in new ways. Help us to treasure it afresh. And help us to dive deep into what it has to say for us. We ask now that you would give us guidance. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Some of you may have heard while you were younger, hopefully while, it was, while you were younger in age and not older. Some of you may have heard the phrase, although I doubt it would have been you specifically because we are all so uh, mature in this place. But some of you may have heard said to somebody else, would you just grow up? Is anybody willing to admit that somebody said that to them. Okay, Kathy is well. <laughs> I am well. Of course, it's very few of us. We are all so mature in this place. It never happened to me. My parents never said that to me. It was always to my younger siblings. They were the immature ones. Would you just grow up? We usually say that to an individual who, in many ways, is not acting appropriate to their age. When a two-year-old acts like a two-year-old, you can't expect them to act anything more than a two-year-old. But when the 15-year-old is acting like the 2-year-old, that's when you say, would you just grow up? Would you stop being so childish? In our passage this morning, we see Paul, he doesn't tell the Philippians, he doesn't rebuke the Philippians with the, would you just grow up phrase, 
But he gives five marks, five indications, five characteristics of what it means to be grown up, what it means to be mature in the faith. Paul gives us five marks of Christian maturity. We see the first one in verse 15. And this is where we see what he's talking about. All of us then who are mature. Anybody want to be mature in this place? Uh, that, That is something that I think all of us, whether you put your hand up or not, would say, yes, I want to be mature in Jesus Christ. I want to be mature in my faith. I want to be mature in my actions. I want to be a grown-up Christian. I want to have moved from the spiritual milk that Paul describes to the spiritual meat. I want to move from formula to feast. That's what I want. And Paul says, all of us then who are mature, if you want to be mature, look at these five marks that Paul describes. Verse 15 Paul says, if you are mature, one of the first marks of being a mature Christian is you will think a certain way. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. You ought to think a certain way. You ought to process and put things together in a certain way. The natural question is, what are these things that Paul is talking about? If I'm supposed to think a certain way, what are those things? If I'm supposed to take that approach... Take such a view of things. What are those things? The greater context that Paul has been working through since chapter 1, verse 27, is think like Christ. Take that mindset as Christ. So that's the greater context, but more specifically, what we came through last week was the immediate context of your dependence on God. Not seeking to find a righteousness in yourself, in what you do and who you are, but having complete and utter dependence on God. Paul is saying that the mature believer recognizes how immature they actually are, how much maturity they have to actually grow in, to get closer to, to come into a more fuller knowledge of who Christ is. Mature believers recognize their dependence on God. And this is where we need to break from what is Christian maturity and what we talk about when we we want our children to grow into maturity. When we are teaching our kids, or at least when Candace is teaching our kids, she gave me an example from yesterday. She took Amelia out to the grocery store to get some groceries, and she asked Amelia, can you hold this? And Amelia apparently decided she didn't want to do that, so she sat on the floor, put the cheese down, and went, nope, in the middle of theirs. And what Candace was telling her, And she relayed this to me later. She says, Amelia, I'm trying to teach you how to shop for groceries so that one day you will know that you need to carry the cheese to the counter and pay for it. I want to show you the process so that you can become independent, which is what we want for our children. We want to bring them up to maturity. And what we're really saying is, is I want you to become self-sufficient. I don't want you to have to rely on me so much anymore. I want you to be able to do things for yourself. And we as parents rejoice in those things. That moment where you don't have to pull every article of clothing onto your kid and they can do that themselves, that is a great day. When they can go to the bathroom by themselves and you don't have to go in to help them, that is an even better day. That is not what Paul is talking about here. The Christian life, Christian maturity, is not about moving to the next level where you become self-sufficient. That is exactly what Paul has gone through and destroyed. You will never be self-sufficient. You will never be there on your own. You will always be dependent on God. Once, yes, for your salvation, for your righteousness, and for your continued growth. Christian maturity is not moving to self-sufficiency. The mature believer is continually aware that they need God's help. They are continually aware of, their, of the deficiencies within in them 
indwelling sin, the spiritual battle that rages inside of every Christian, the mature believer becomes more and more aware of that and depends more and more on God for help. Mature believers turn to Jesus quickly. They don't turn to themselves. They don't turn to each other. They turn quickly to Jesus. Not just in the sense of a daily habit. We, should, we ought to do that right off the bat. We ought to turn to Jesus as a daily discipline, whether it's through reading the scriptures, whether it's through prayer. We ought to automatically just turn to Jesus. And that can become a discipline, something that we want to work up. We want to get that habit. But more so... Because we recognize Jesus as the true satisfying peace for our heart. That there are things in our lives, in our hearts, that we try to fill in that gap, fill in that hole, and Jesus is the only thing that can fill that. So we turn to Jesus. We rely on Jesus and his ability to satisfy those needs in our lives instead of everything else, instead of what we can come up with. We rely on Jesus. We learn to lean not on our self-sufficiency, but on the sufficiency of Jesus and Jesus alone. This is the mindset. This is the attitude that Paul is saying, all of us then who are mature. And what he's not saying is, all of us then who are perfectly mature. Because he has just come through and said from verses 12 through 14, I'm not there yet. I'm not perfect. I don't have it all together. And yet, I press on. And that leads us to the second thing that Paul says. You press on. That's in verse 16. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. What he's saying is, we come together, we recognize our dependence on God, and we we realize really what that's saying is, the attitude that we have towards God is, I'm not good enough. I don't have it all together, Lord. And what we might do is, I feel like I use my children too many times, but let me use them as one more example. Children are great because they actually show us so much of what we're like before our Heavenly Father. The, the things I see in my kids and the patience that they force me to have really shows me how much patience the Lord must have with me when I do things very similar to what they do in a spiritual sense. But when the kids, they decide, they get so frustrated with trying to get their socks on or their shoes on or whatever it is, they just can't get it and they just flop down and they're just tempted to give up. I can't do it. There's no way, I just, dad, I just need, you need to do it for me. I can't. I just don't have it. And what do we do? We try to encourage. Yes, you can. Here, let me help you. I'll show you. No, you've got it upside down. The boot doesn't go on that way. Try the other foot. Try taking it apart. Nope, that's not even your coat. That's way too small for you. Don't try putting that on. It's not going to work. We try to encourage and we try to help. Don't become discouraged, Paul says. Don't give up. What have we attained? Paul says, live up to or hold on to what we have already attained. What have we attained? We've attained salvation in Christ, not on our own merits, not by our own works, but by Jesus Christ. We have salvation in him. Paul has described the unity that we have in him, how we ought to band together, pull together, stand, strive together in the midst of the world for the proclamation of the gospel. We have attained a commitment to know him, We're called to renew that commitment each and every day in our hearts, to know him more and more and more. We have a commitment to press on. That's what we've attained. That's what Paul has just described through chapter 2. This is what we have in Jesus Christ. And Paul says that mature believers take the mindset that we utterly depend on God. 
and we put that into action. We don't give up. We don't sit down in the dirt and say, I can't do it. There's no point. Because God is working in us. That's something that Paul has been very clear. It is God who works in you. It is God who began a good work, and he will bring it to completion. So we don't sit down in the dirt and go, well, why, why bother? We can actually pull up our socks and go, okay, Lord, I don't know what I'm doing, and I need to trust on you. I need to lean on you the whole way, but I will press on. I will continue to work. The ESV translates that phrase that we have in the NIV, live up. The ESV translates it as hold true. Hold true in the sense of you've seen where you're going. You've seen what the goal is. Hold true to that. Don't deviate. Don't abandon what you have before you. Don't give up. Remember that Christ has taken hold of you. He is the one who is holding on to you and he is the one who will not let go of you. So press on. Paul says Christian maturity is marked by thinking a certain way. It's beginning with the foundation that we do not have righteousness on our own. But look at the phrase in the last half of verse 15. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. That is, we continue to work together. We continue to press on. We don't give up. We recognize and cannot lose sight of the fact that every one of us must at the very outset depend on God. If you come to this rabble of believers, depending on yourself, we're starting off on the wrong foot. And yet, if we start off on the right foot, we are utterly dependent on God. Paul seems to indicate, if on some point you think differently, not this point, not the utter dependence on God, but if as we work together, there are some differences. Paul is relying heavily on his friendship with the Philippians. He has many instructions for them. And yet he says, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. We can have differences. Paul, again, is not calling for cookie-cutter Christianity. He's not saying we're supposed to be the exact same individual. He's saying we are supposed to have the exact same start with our faith, and that is in Jesus and him alone. And you and I are going to look different as we work out our faith. But if we pull up our socks and work together in unity, we live up to what we have attained, hold true to what we see in Jesus Christ, and move forward in that, that is what we're called to do. The third thing, the third mark of Christian maturity that Paul gives us is in verse 17. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Paul says, thirdly, that a mark of Christian maturity is following godly examples, following specific, certain examples, not just any old example out there of good leadership or a good person. We are looking for godly examples. And we don't need to spend too much time on this. We spent uh, uh, quite a bit of time in this when we we looked at Timothy and Epaphroditus as godly examples. Follow their example. So we won't belabor the point too much. But Paul's example is what? Pursuing Christ. Not perfection. He has said already, and will say again and again and again, I am not perfect. I am not there. But he is a model of pursuing Christ. Wanting to know him more. And we ought to look for those kinds of people, people who are just so driven to know Jesus, who want to know Jesus more and more and more. We need to surround ourselves with those kind of people. We need to find those people and sit next to them, do ministry with them, have coffee with them, 
pick their brains on how they would approach certain situations. We need to find people who are mature. If you want to grow in maturity, you ought to find the people who are more mature than you. Not that this is some sort of exclusive group or exclusive mature Christian club. It's not that the mature are only supposed to hang out with the mature. Paul is saying if you want to be mature, a good sign that you're mature is you find other mature people and you follow them. Paul is not saying that there's this closed bubble of mature believers, and I'm thankful for that, or else I wouldn't be able to hang out with Sam and Steph in the office. I would be booted out because I'm so immature. But Paul says find those people, not that there's some exclusive group, find people who are further along that walk with Jesus. Find those people and follow what they do. That is, don't just find them and go, well done, and give them a round of applause. Examples are meant to be followed. Remember all those math examples that you had in school? Some of you may still have them, where you you had, I don't know, a whole sheet of 10 or 12 different examples. And the whole point was, you follow the example of number one and number two. You follow through on all of those, and by the end of it, in theory, you understand how to do the math, right? You follow the example, and you will get to the end goal of knowing. And this question is really about who do you want to be like? Out of all the people you see and interact with, who are the kind of people that you point at and you go, that's who I want to be like in five years, 10 years, 50 years. That's the kind of person I want to be known as when I am older. A mature believer looks for godly examples to watch and imitate, primarily because, and this is the important thing, because the mature believer is ultimately following the example of Jesus Christ. So you and I can look for examples in each other. Some are better examples in different areas than others. Some of you will excel in patience, and those who need to grow in patience should find those who excel in patience and sit around them those who are good at hospitality. And if you need to grow in what it means to be hospitable and to welcome people and to cherish people and want to value people, you find those people and you surround yourself with those people and you grow in those areas. But we are ultimately doing it because those people started off, yes, by following other examples that they saw, but because the root example that we follow is Jesus Christ. His example of what it means to worship God. Mature believers think a certain way. They press on and walk a certain direction that is pressing on to Jesus Christ. They follow certain examples. The fourth one we see in verses 18 and 19 is a mark of Christian maturity is you feel certain emotions. Now, the Bible certainly has a lot to talk about our emotions, how we process our feelings. And Paul has one here specifically that he brings out. What is the certain emotion that Paul is talking about? Look in verse 18. For as I have often told you before now, before and now tell you again, even with tears. What Paul is about to go into is he's going to talk about people who are immature. And in the greatest sense of immaturity, spiritual immaturity, they are not believers at all. He will go on to describe people who are enemies of the cross. And as an enemy of the cross you are not saved. Those who are saved find themselves at the foot of the cross, bowing before Jesus Christ and committing their all to him. If you live as an enemy of the cross, you are not saved. And Paul, when he talks about these people, as he's done before, 
And as he brings up it, it up again, his approach to that is tears. He's devastated. This is not a new believer type of immature. This is somebody who doesn't know Jesus at all, who has not submitted themselves to the cross. You cannot be an enemy of the cross and proclaim the cross at the same time. You cannot fight and war against what the cross represents and say that Jesus is Lord because of what he's done on the cross. Paul weeps for these people. What Paul really does is he moves through this. He's he's given us examples in Timothy and Epaphroditus. He's called people to look at himself in the way that he pursues Christ. And now he contrasts that with some other examples we might have in our lives. He says there's good examples and there's bad examples of what it means to live your life. These kind of people, they're shown to be what they are ultimately by where their mind is at, where their goal is at. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Where is their goal? It's not on Jesus Christ, and it's not on heaven. It's not on the heavenly, it's on earthly things. It's the here and now, and that's it. They don't go beyond what they can get right now. Paul says, to have your mind set on earthly things, to only worry about here and now, that means you live your life as an enemy of the cross. There are only two ways of living. And these are the two examples I think Paul has given us. There is the pursuit of Jesus Christ in full submission to God, recognizing that it's in his power and his alone that we can do anything. But there's only two ways. There's the Christ-centered way and the self-centered way. Refusing to die to self proves one to be an enemy of the cross. Refusing to let go of yourself, refusing to let go of right here, right now, everything that I can get, refusing to let go of that for the sake of Jesus Christ ultimately proves your heart to be an enemy of the cross. Destruction is the destiny for those who oppose the message of the cross. Their destiny is destruction. Their end is destruction. That is, you can't oppose the cross and one day hope to go to heaven. You cannot hate Jesus Christ and one day hope to be with him forever. It just doesn't work. You can't have your God as your stomach. You can't glory in your shame. That's an interesting phrase, glory in their shame. It's almost as if there's some debate about what this actually means. You know how there's people who are famous in this world for the stupid things that they do? Social media has made a massive outlet for this, where people are actually rich because they're stupid. People are actually rich because they are so shameful and do ridiculous things and other people see it and if it gets enough likes, I think this is how it works, or enough upvotes or whatever it is, you can make money off of this. Their glory, the thing that they glory in is the very fact that they are so shameful. Paul says, your glory is not supposed to be in yourself. Your God is not supposed to be about filling your earthly satisfactions. Your God and your glory ought to be Jesus Christ. And if you are only focused on the here and now, you tip your hand. You show your cards that you are not following Jesus. You are tipping your hand in terms of where you will end up, not with Jesus, but in destruction. 
the important thing we want to hang on to is, yes, those important reminders about what it means to ultimately follow Jesus and what that means for us in our hearts. Where is your priority? Home is where the heart is. Isn't that the phrase that people put up? Where is your heart? Is it with Jesus on high or is it in the here and now? Those are important things to to work through and think through. But Paul here, we want to look at what Paul does and how Paul approaches this. Paul, after describing these people, and even as I use the phrase, people get famous over the stupid things that they do, we want to be careful with how we talk about them. Those kind of people who are apart from the cross, who are ultimately apart, of, apart from Jesus Christ. Paul does not mock. He does not insult. He does not ridicule the lost. He weeps for them. He is utterly heartbroken there, that there are people who don't know Jesus. That he has friends and family members who don't know Jesus Christ. And it's so easy for us who know the truth And it's just like trying to teach kids. Again, sorry I use my kids so much. When you try to teach your kids what's true and you try to teach your kids what just makes sense, don't you see it? How don't you get it? You put this one together and this one together. What does it make? Two. And and it's that simple sometimes. Giving up yourself for the sake of Jesus Christ. Don't you see it? Don't you get it? And you, you may have done this with family members. You've shared the gospel with them. You've shown them what it says in the scriptures about what it means to rely on yourself and how ultimately if you follow your own heart and your own mind, which is what the culture wants you to do, you follow that, your end is destruction. Don't trust in yourself. Yourself stinks. And that's not to be rude. That's not to be nasty. But I know my own heart. I know what it was like before Jesus Christ. Don't you see that Jesus is the answer? And there's that blindness there. There's that blank stare There's the apathy. Maybe there's even the hostility. And Paul says, for him, he doesn't get angry. He doesn't feel self-justified. Well, I gave them the truth and they didn't want to listen so God can deal with them. He weeps over them because they are lost souls bound for hell and if they do not come to know Jesus Christ, that is their end. That is their destiny. Paul weeps over the lost. Do you weep for the lost? I think we would say that that, that's the desire we want to have in our hearts. We want to weep for the lost. But I don't think we feel as sad for the world out there as we should. We feel justified in the way that we think. We feel justified in the way that politics is going. We feel, well, the U.S. seems to be split right down the middle in terms of who they want to have as president. And Christians can go, yeah, that's what you get when you don't pay attention to the Bible. That's what you get when you don't pay attention to what God's word says. You get such division split right down the middle that your country is just going to be divided and pulled apart. We can, we can feel so, it's so easy for us to just sit on our high horses as believers, isn't it? And to look down at believer, unbelievers, to look down at the people who don't know any better. Paul says he weeps over them. The fifth thing that Paul says, the fifth thing, fifth mark of Christian maturity that Paul has is in verses 20 and 21. He says, moving out of what it means to weep for the lost, to care about them, to preach the gospel, which has been Paul's whole life. He moves from that and he says, we await a certain savior. 
We think a certain way. We walk a certain way. We follow certain examples. We feel certain emotions. And now we await a certain Savior, a specific Savior. Look in verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. That is, our minds are not to be focused on the earthly. We're supposed to be focused on the heavenly. Our heart is in heaven with Jesus. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. The mature believer does not work. We do not live our lives here for just the earthly We need to go to our jobs so that we can have money, so we can buy groceries, so that we can feed our families. Yes, that is important. That is true. We do work and interact with the earthly here. But our ultimate goal is not this. Retirement at 55 is not the end goal. That's not why we work hard. Our minds as believers are in heaven Our citizenship is in heaven. This was something that was very important to the Philippians, to Philippi. As a Roman um, city, they took their citizenship very seriously. They had all the rights and privileges that every Roman citizen had. That when something was going wrong, they were given a higher status of importance compared to people who did not have Roman citizenship. And we have all the rights and privileges and inheritance that comes from our heavenly citizenship. Not one because of what we've done, but one because of what Jesus Christ has done. We merely await the full experience which, which comes with his return. That's why we eagerly await. We've been promised an inheritance. We've been promised something that's going to be coming. We eagerly await Christmas, right? We get excited every year. And we get excited about the remembrance that we have about the birth of Jesus Christ. And we get excited when we sing, Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. And yet when Jesus comes back, there will be something, a different song that will be sung. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the returning king. Glory to the, the risen king. That king has come back and he is setting up his throne here on this earth. The mature believer is marked by hope eagerly awaiting, and hope in an unparalleled power. Everything is under his control, which may not seem like it right now. Are we willing to admit that? That as we look around our world and what's going on, it does not seem like Jesus has everything under his control. And yet, because of the power of the resurrection, because of the power that he has due to his sacrifice, everything is under his control. It doesn't look like it right now, But I've used this example before about a pastor. As he was preaching, he was talking about these things, and it looks like the world is going to hell in a handbasket. That's the phrase, right? It just looks like everything out there is just going the exact opposite of towards Jesus. The world is running from Jesus, not to Jesus. The world looks like everything is against Christianity, not for it. It looks like the people of God have the toughest time coming in the future, And this pastor said, but it's okay because I've read the end of the book. Jesus wins. And all those examples that we see in Revelation, some people want to talk about, is this this the end times? Is this revelation happening right now? And quite frankly, I don't know. We can debate back and forth all day long about whether revelation is happening right now. But you know the point of revelation? 
is not necessarily to figure out every single step and every individual that fits into those pieces. Those are important things to figure out. But the most important thing about the book of Revelation, written by the Apostle John to churches, it's a pastoral book. It's a book written from an elder who has been exiled, who seems like he has no hope for the future. He writes this to churches who are in the middle of some of the worst Roman persecution, some of the worst persecution the church has ever experienced in the world. And he says, Jesus is still on his throne. That's the point of Revelation. If you read Revelation and you don't get the point that Jesus is still on his throne, is still ruling and reigning on high, you've read it wrong. We can debate back and forth about what the beast means and what all these marks mean. But Jesus is still on his throne. Jesus has the power to bring everything under his control and we ought to be marked by excitement that he is coming back. That that king, the rider on the white horse, that he is coming back. Okay, you don't, you don't have to be really excited right now. I know I'm not the, you know, the most exciting person. But is that exciting to you? That Jesus is coming back? that he will make everything right, that he will transform your lowly body into one like his glorious body. All of the aches and pains, all of the problems that we have with our physical bodies. And this is why, as important as it is to try to understand viruses and pandemics, as important as it is to try to take safe measures and precautions Again, you can debate that back and forth all you want. Not with me. I don't want to talk with you about it. But <laughs> That whatever happens to this body in this life, that's okay. doesn't mean we, we're reckless. doesn't mean that we're, we're stupid with this body in this life. We are called to honor God with this life. And yet, we are to be marked by excitement for the transformation that awaits our body. That, that this... What we have here is not going to be what we have in heaven. Yes, the aches and pains will be gone, but the most exciting part about having a transformed body is not that your knees won't ever ache again. It's not that your back will never be sore again. It's that your body will be free from sin. You will be perfect in the sight of the Father because of what Jesus has done. We await that Savior, the Savior who came at Christmas time, born so that he might die for you and for me. We await that Savior to come back. And until he does, we participate in the table. Not just as a remembrance. Yes, that is true. That is exactly what we're doing. We are remembering what he's done, but we are proclaiming what he's done. And every time we come to the table, we are proclaiming, Lord Jesus, come again. Lord Jesus, come soon. Lord Jesus, we can't wait to see you coming back. That's what we do at the table. Our Savior will not be found in any human being on this earth. Our Savior is on high. He has every power and every authority in his hand. And when he comes back, you'll know it. When he comes back, there will be no doubt that he rules and reigns. Would you just take a moment, perhaps to renew your excitement? Perhaps to merely give thanks. Would you take a moment, and if you've got your, your little cups, just open the top one there. I know it can be a little tricky, so I'll give, you, I'll give you some time as I make my way down to the table. Take some time to remember your Lord.
Lord, as we go from here, renew in us that excitement to see our Savior face to face. The excitement that we feel, Lord, for Christmas, the, the good feelings, the warmth, the happiness, the peace, and even sometimes the sadness, Lord. Take all of those feelings, all of those things that we have directed at the birth of our Savior, help us to turn them to excitement for his return. We thank you for Jesus Christ, and we praise you in him and what he's done. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.